This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Good morning and welcome back to Solid Foundation Ministries. Today I'm going to be continuing the series that we've been doing on Do We Really Believe the Bible? I want to talk today about twisting the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17 it says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. The word corrupt in this verse is from the same Greek word meaning to corrupt wine by watering it down. There are those who deliberately twist or corrupt the scriptures in order to gain their own purposes. There are also those who twist the scriptures through ignorance. In 2 Peter 3.16 it says, As also in his epistles, speaking in them things which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. The word rest here means to twist. So we're talking about those who in ignorance twist the scriptures, not knowing what they're talking about. This usually stems from the fact that they haven't been taught sound doctrine and therefore are unstable in their interpretation of the scriptures. Let's start by looking at the first place where the words of God were twisted. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, uh, God is talking to Adam, and he said, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. This is a very clear and simple command given to Adam by God. There is not only a command, there is also a clearly stated consequence of disobedience. When Eve told the serpent, Satan, what God had said, she changed it slightly. In Genesis 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. When Eve said, Neither shall ye touch it, I doubt that she was deliberately twisting what God had said. First of all, we don't know what Adam told her. Maybe he told her not to touch the tree for her protection. The point is that God did not say they could not touch the tree. When Eve said, Lest ye die, she may well have thought she was just saying the same thing as, Thou shalt surely die. The difference may not be readily obvious. God said, Thou shalt surely die. This is a definite statement of fact. There is absolutely no doubt that death will come if you eat of the fruit. Lest ye die is much less definite. It says it is possible that you will die. It is a much weaker statement of fact. Those who support the new Bible versions often say that the differences don't make any real difference in meaning. It doesn't take much of a change of wording to change the meaning. Satan is subtle, and he will use those changes, as he's done in this case, to draw us away from the truth. You will notice how he used this small change in the next verse. It says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. You will notice that Satan kept the word surely in there, which means it's not a certainty. She said that if they ate of the fruit, they might die. 
Satan comes back and said that they would not surely die, so he's contradicting what God said, but not what Eve said. In the next verse, he went a step further and charged God of hiding something from them. In verse 5 it said, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing both good and evil. It only takes a small difference in the wording of things to allow a different conclusion. Satan knows how to take small changes in wording and use them to make great changes in doctrine. I'm starting to hear something that I never heard in Baptist churches before, something we never would have heard of had not small changes been made in verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Most modern translations change are saved to are being saved. This change makes salvation a process instead of an event. While it is true there is a process that brings one to salvation, one is saved the instant he believes. If salvation is a process that starts when we believe, but is finished at some future time, it can be interrupted before it is completed. This opens the door to this doctrine I'm talking about. It says that one has eternal security as long as he wants it, but if he decides that he no longer wants it, he can walk away. This new doctrine violates several biblical principles. First, at salvation, receive eternal or everlasting life. If the life we receive can ever end, it is neither eternal or everlasting. I like to put it this way. If it ever stops lasting, it was never everlasting. This also violates the doctrine that we are kept by the power of God. In, in 1 Peter 1.5 it says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We need to remember that it is God's power that keeps us saved, not our own. If we can keep ourselves saved in any way, even if it's just a decision to walk away, then our salvation would be based on us and not on Jesus Christ. John told us that those who leave Christianity were never Christians in the first place. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19 it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for had they been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. They went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. You will notice the words no doubt are in italics if you're reading this in your Bible. This tells us that they are not in the Greek text. The translators added them because the Greek word was so strong that the full meaning would be missed by the English reader without them. What John is saying is that it is a certainty that those who are truly Christians will never depart. Scripture can also be twisted by misuse. You don't have to change the words or even the meaning of the words to twist Scripture. You can twist Scripture by using a passage in a way that ignores the context in which it is used. My favorite example is of this is the way many use Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and, and will sup with him and he with me. 
The context of this verse refers to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ had been put out of the church of the Laodiceans. If you compare the introductory verse in each of the seven letters, you will notice that this one is different. The other six letters were addressed to the angel, that is the pastor, of the church at a given location. This one is addressed to the angel of the church which belongs to the Laodiceans. In this verse, the Lord is telling this pastor that he is knocking at the door trying to get back inside the church. He says that if someone will open the door, he will restore that sweet fellowship that the church should have with the Lord. Those who use this verse to say that Jesus is knocking at the door of a lost person's heart trying to save them are distorting or twisting the scriptures. There's nothing in the context that allows this kind of an application or of an interpretation. When I say this to people, I usually get an answer something like this. Well, yes, that's what it means, but any scripture can have multiple applications. Well, I don't really think that's true. We'll see as we look at a, another passage of scripture that is used with a an application that is different from what we would normally expect when we read the original scripture. Just remember this, when you make an application of scripture, it always must agree with the context and it must agree with the underlying principles of that passage of scripture. Now, an example of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4, it says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. There are two passages of Scripture where Paul uses this Old Testament verse to talk about the importance of a church taking care of its pastor. The first one of those is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9-11. through 11. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. He that ploweth should plow in hope. He that thresheth in hope should he be partaker of this hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing that we shall reap your carnal things? Then he uses it again in First Timothy. In chapter 5 and verses 17 and 18, it says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. There is an underlying principle in Deuteronomy that Paul is making an application of in these two passages. The underlying principle is that those who labor should be rewarded for their labor. The ox treads out the corn and should be allowed to partake of that same corn as reward for the labor that he's doing. He makes that same application for uh, pastors who labor in spiritual things that we might have spiritual growth and spiritual benefit and he says that they should also benefit from our material things. In other words, a pastor should receive some sort of reward for the work that he does. He should be paid, in other words. 
there is no underlying principle in Revelation 3.20 which allows us to use it to refer to Christ knocking at the door of a lost person's heart. The danger of using this verse in this way is that it teaches that we can use any passage to say whatever we want it to say. Folks, this is how cults get started. They take something out of its context, or they ignore the real meaning of it and change it to say something that it really doesn't say, and on that uh, false interpretation, they'll build a whole new religion, a cult, that will lead many people astray. What is really sad is that there are so many people who are caught up in this type of thing and follow these false teachers not realizing what's happening. Another way that scriptures can be distorted, and it's usually unintentional when it happens this way, but it's by not knowing the meaning of words. Words in both Greek and English often have multiple meanings. We need to be able to determine which meaning should be used in any given context. If we don't, we will end up twisting the scriptures. It behooves each pastor and each teacher of the Word of God to know which meaning is appropriate for any given passage. This is why one of the most valuable tools in studying the Bible is a good English dictionary. I like to use Webster's 1828 because the meanings there are closer to the meanings in 1611 when my Bible was translated. But it doesn't really matter if you use a good English dictionary. You'll be able to find which meaning should be used in any given situation. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 to see what I'm talking about. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The word I want to look at in this verse is that little word hold. Many of the modern translations change this to suppress. They say that this passage is referring to those who suppress the word of God, not those who hold the word of God. We need to understand that the word hold means to hang on to and to have in your possession, where suppress means to stop others from knowing what it's all about. When we look up this word hold in the dictionary, we find that it has a number of meanings. It means to refrain from escape, to embrace or accept, to keep together, to consider or have in mind, to retain within itself, to have or possess, and about 20 other different definitions for that word. When translations or preachers change this word hold to suppress, they do this to say that the verse is talking about keeping the truth from others. Let's examine the verse in its context and see if that's what it means here. The next two verses, verses 19 and 20, say, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We are told here, that what may be known of God by the natural man is manifest to people because God has already showed it to them. Everybody knows that there is some kind of a God. It has to be educated out of those who claim there is no God. It's just natural. God has built it into us. It, it tells us also that the invisible things of God are visible in the visible things. 
We can see the power of God by looking at his creation. We know that there has to be something bigger than us to have made what we see around us. The things that God has done can be seen by those who who are not saved just by the things that are around them. It's hidden in their conscience. There's a reason why every culture in the world believes in some sort of a deity. Those who know this and yet go on living life their own way, knowing that they're violating the principles of this God in whom they know exist, these people are holding the truth. They have the truth, so they're holding it, and they're holding it in unrighteousness because they're living in unrighteousness in their lives. The rest of the chapter describes how men hold the truth in unrighteousness. It talks about knowing that there's a God, that they don't worship him as God. It tells how they've changed the creature's of God's creation into God and replaced him with them. You have stone idols. You have those who worship the trees today. That's the big thing with the the uh, environmental movement. They worship the things that God created rather than the God who created them. It talks about the immorality. It talks about homosexuality and, and all of this type of thing. And it really tells us how man has changed God's principles, and holds the truth in unrighteousness. The last verse gives us something that is really sad. It says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. It's not bad enough that they know the things that they're doing are wrong, and even worthy of death. They try and get others to do them also. I suppose it makes them feel better knowing that others are doing the same bad things that they're doing. It kind of uh, salves their guilt a little bit, I guess. Why do you think that everybody gets so upset when you say, that's wrong, you shouldn't do it? Another way that we can twist the Word of God is bringing our preconceptions into the Word of God. By this I mean we believe something to be true, so we try to find proof texts from the Bible. This approach is backwards. We don't prove our beliefs by forcing them into Scripture. We let Scripture determine what our beliefs are. In other words, we don't say, well, I've got this thing that I believe to be so. Let's go see if I can find a passage of Scripture that will say it. Most of those who do this have to take the Scripture that they use to support that uh, doctrine that they're bringing into Scripture by taking things out of context. Folks, let me tell you something. The Bible is supposed to tell us what we believe. We're not supposed to go to the Bible to prove something just because it's what we believe. Let me use an example here. Both Catholics and Protestants believe in baptizing infants to make them part of the church, whatever that may mean. There's a little difference in the way they see it, but they all believe that. They take this preconceived doctrine that they should baptize infants into the scriptures and try and find a text to back up what they're saying. One of the passages that they use is found in Acts chapter 16 and verse 33. This is talking about uh, Peter when he came out of prison, you know, when he'd been beaten, and the, the Philippian jailer uh, asked him what he had to do to be saved, and it goes on to say in verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. 
Now the jailer took them in, and they took care of their needs, and they, and then once the gospel had been preached to to his family, they they got saved and they were baptized. There's not a thing in this verse or anywhere in the context about baptizing infants, but both Catholics and Protestants assume there must have been small children in the jailer's household, and when it says, he and all his, they say that must have included infants. There is absolutely no basis for that assumption. Just the fact that it says his whole family doesn't mean there were any infants. We haven't had an infant in our group for uh, over 21 years. That's when my grandson was born. So you can see that just because they had his whole family there together, it doesn't mean that he had infants in that family. As a matter of fact, it's likely that the jailer was an older man because of the fact that he was in charge of the whole prison. Had he not been an older man, he wouldn't have had time to rise up through the ranks to be in the position that he was in. In this next item I want to look at, we have a misconception that comes from uh, not understanding the meaning of words, and it affects almost everybody out there today. They use this next verse that I'm going to read to teach something that isn't taught in this verse. It happens to be something that is true, as we'll see in a moment, but it nevertheless is not taught by the particular verse that is often used. This verse is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. It says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Most take this verse to teach that the Holy Spirit indwells in each and every Christian. It is true that the Holy Spirit does dwell in every Christian, but this verse is not teaching that, and when you take this verse to mean that, you miss something that is very important. By the way, as we look at this, it's just another reason why we should be using the King James Bible instead of all these modern Bibles, because there's not a single modern Bible that you will get this from. This verse is written to the Church of God, which is at Corinth. Let's take a closer look at this verse and see what it's really talking about. The first thing that I want to do is look at the pronouns that are used in this passage of Scripture. You will notice that ye and you are used in this verse. We do not see thee or thou anywhere in this passage of Scripture. These pronouns, that is, ye and you, are plural. This tells us that it, Paul is talking to and about a group He's not talking to an individual, or even to individuals as such. If we were reading this in any of the modern translations, you would find that it says you and you in both cases. In modern English, these pronouns are not used, not because they're not good pronouns, but because uh, we're just too lazy to figure out what they mean. Now, when we look at the nouns that are used, we see that they're singular. There are four nouns used, body, temple, Holy Ghost, if we join those two together as one, and God. All of these nouns are singular, as I said. The two that matter for our discussion are the two body and temple. Let's put what I've just said together and see what it really means. When it says, your body, it refers to the group, that is, the church of God, which is at Corinth. The body is singular, therefore it's a singular body which belongs to the whole group. It is not each individual's 
body. Paul did know the difference because back in verse 15, he used the word bodies. We'll see another verse in a moment that uses bodies in, the, in a similar context, and you'll see the difference in meaning that comes from using it that way. Anyway, we see that Paul here is talking to a singular body which belongs to a group of people, that is, the church there at Corinth. You'll also notice that the term temple is singular. This means that Paul is not talking about several bodies being several temples. He's talking about one temple being one body. I know that some of you out there are going to get upset with me and say that I'm not teaching that or that I don't believe that the Holy Spirit indwells each Christian, but he does. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, we're taught that very thing. It says, but the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Notice that's plural. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. Now you have your mortal bodies. Body is plural also. By his Spirit that dwelleth in you. So you have here the Bible teaching us that God's Holy Spirit does in fact indwell each and every Christian's body. In that sense, each and every Christian's body would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. The thing is, this verse that we're looking at does not teach that it is the individual Christian's body that is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It teaches that the local church is also a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's something that's very important. We really don't want to miss this principle. When people understand that the local church is a temple of the Holy Spirit, it will change the way they look at church. It will change the way they think when they come to a church service. It will cause them to show more respect, both in the way they act and the way they dress when they come to church. They'll realize that the Holy Spirit is there in a very special way. It will cause them to listen to the preaching with greater desire to receive something from it. They will understand that a, a go godly pastor is being led by the Holy Spirit as he's up there preaching and that there's a message in it for them. Do we really want to miss this point because we twist the meaning by not knowing what the words mean? We need to remember that a temple is a place where God uh, dwells. The pagan temples are where they believe that their gods dwell. The temple in Jerusalem was where God met with his people, and in a sense, he dwelt there with them. Uh, and our bodies are a dwelling place, therefore a temple of the Holy Spirit, but so is the local church. It would give us a lot more respect if we would just grasp this point. I can't believe how unfaithful people are to this place called the local church, which is also a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a place where we go to meet with God and how often people can miss for almost no reason whatsoever. Getting this doctrine straight should help overcome that error. I'm sure that we can find a lot of other ways that people twist the Word of God. Some people do it by redefining words to mean something they know they don't mean because they want to get uh, their doctrine out. You'll see that in the cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the, the Mormons. And I'm sure that all of us, from time to time, to a greater or lesser degree, do the same thing. We plug our meaning in. We twist the Scriptures. What I want to get across this morning in this message is that we need to take great care to ensure that we are not unknowingly twisting the Scriptures. We also must be careful of those who twist the Scriptures, either deliberately or in ignorance, 
We need to understand that the Bible teaches we're not supposed to hang around that kind of people. Now, of course, when we see somebody doing it, our first obligation is to show them their error, and then if they refuse to change, we should separate from them. And by the way, that's going to be the subject of another uh, message in this series on do we really believe the Bible, because the Bible is very clear that we're to separate from those who teach error. We're to make sure that we hang around the right people. We need to remember that evil communications corrupt good manners. And what that means, folks, is that if we hang around the wrong people, if most of our communication is with the wrong people, it's going to affect the way we act, which is what manners are. It's going to affect what we believe and how we do things and why we do them. So, folks, let's examine ourselves, each one of us, and believe me, putting together this series of messages has forced me to examine myself. But let's examine ourselves and make sure that we don't inadvertently twist the scriptures, that we stay faithful to what God says, that we don't bring in our preconceived ideas, that we don't try and force our own doctrine into the scriptures. And let's make sure that we know what the words mean and how to use them correctly so we will understand what God has to say uh, to us. This will change our lives. I'm going to end here for today. I'll be back next week and we'll have the next lesson in this series. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com or call 828-244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.